Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. This is part two of our look at Louis Sullivan's 1896 essay, The Tall Office Building Artistically Considered. If you are curious about some of the built work that Louis Sullivan produced throughout his career, we have some images posted on lapsuslima.com. Last episode, we left off with Sullivan observing the skyscraper as emerging not from the mind of a unique inventor, but as the result of an organic sociological and economic process. In his opinion, the morphogenesis of the skyscraper, that is, how it came to have its own distinctive form, was due less to the decision of discrete designers than to the aggregate of many individual wills in interaction with a surrounding environment. In some ways, this force, powerful enough to influence and shape the behavior of individual actors, was striking a similar vein to the concept of Triebe, or drive, that Freud would feature in his theory some years later. Now, Sullivan's drive, specifically showcased in the formation of skyscrapers, was encapsulated in the famous phrase, form ever follows function, which he believed to be the axiom underpinning all morphogenesis, indeed, its necessary path. And it followed that his method for articulating the shape of a skyscraper was intimately linked to that same process. As we already saw, the beginning of his essay is interested in the why of a skyscraper's development. Very soon, though, it leads to the problem of building, which he states in the following terms. How shall we impart to this sterile pile, this crude, harsh, brutal agglomeration, this strange, weird, modern housetop, the peaceful evangel of sentiment? of beauty, the cult of a higher life? We must seek the solution of it in a process analogous to its own evolution, indeed a continuation of it, namely by proceeding step by step from general to special aspects, from coarser to finer considerations. He continues to describe the problem in detail. The programmatic elements of a skyscraper are noted, with utility equipment in a basement, open spaces for shops and lobbies on the first floor, semi-public offices on the second, a hive-like concatenation of repeated rooms in the many floors above, and an attic space for sheltering and the circulation return of the utilities that began in the basement. What we have is a picture of what specialists call tripartite ordering. The base, midsection, and top of the skyscraper are visually and functionally distinct from one another. This typology, nearly ubiquitous today despite the newer glass skin structures that attempt to gloss over it, was beginning to emerge in the late 19th century. Earlier tall buildings had taken the repetition of floors as an excuse to pass off as many arcane, stylistic references as possible. Think of contemporary irritation with this manner of historicism as analogous to a sitcom made up of nothing but meme clips and catchphrases. 
it would grate. Some of these buildings would even top out with a pyramid supported by classical columns. In his essay, Sullivan ridicules this approach. Later, in kindergarten chats, he jokes that if these places of business are to be dressed up like ancient structures, the businessmen should take the trend seriously and wear a toga to work. In challenge of this prevalent practice, Sullivan emphasizes that in designing, for example, the arrangement of windows, one should make them look all alike because they are all alike. In so doing, he is seeking what he calls a true and normal type, arising from a miasma of historical mimicry. We must, however, be careful to set our hindsight lens aside for a minute, or it really may sound as if Sullivan is hectoring for the factory-repeatable machine-ethic template of modernist architecture. That he is not. While his design imperatives do include the values that would come to be associated with the modernist movement, he also goes beyond them. He specifically addresses the social requirements. The question of material function, concerns of planning and construction, and further still, what he calls the true architectural expression through the addition of a certain quality and quantity of sentiment. And even if all of these conditions are satisfied, the result may be yet far from adequate, for it is the voice of emotion that he calls an imperative, not displacing, but transcending all the others. Sullivan sees the very emotional impact of the building's height as something neglected by designers up to that point. In the following section, he outlines what he felt were the limited viewpoints of his contemporaries regarding the tripartite ordering, since he was not alone in noticing this typological development. He did, however, feel that everyone else was missing the point to some extent. Before getting to the core of his own theory, he lists several other explanations. He calls some critics very thoughtful for comparing the tripartite ordering to the plinth shaft and capital structure of a classical column. The likeness, he admits, is clever, though, as we shall soon see, its more important aspects lie beneath the superficial correlation. Other theorists had made a numerological argument, to the effect that the number three was so prevalent in nature that the tripartite ordering was but a logical result. Somewhat related was the idea that the structure of a syllogism with major premise, minor premise, and conclusion, or that of a narrative with beginning, middle, and end might resonate with it as well. With all of this, Sullivan seems to be acknowledging a 19th century linguistic turn of sorts, hailing from those with what he pejoratively called a purely intellectual temperament, and who felt that the structure of language and that of buildings were tightly imbricated, this is an important idea to remark upon because it would lay more or less dormant until it came to newfound prominence in architectural thought around the 1960s and 70s. As for the list of triads, it goes on. Making himself distinct from, but still ahead of, the curve of organic architecture, which, yes, he calls by that name, he also finds the biomimetic analogy to root stem, and flower to be too limited.
in an almost uncanny anticipation of where Mies van der Rohe would take skyscraper architecture, he wraps up his dismissal of this host of Trinitarian explanations by stating that Others still, more susceptible to the power of a unit than to the grace of a trinity, say that such a design should be struck out at a blow as though by a blacksmith or by mighty Jove, or should be thought-born as was Minerva full-grown. They accept the notion of a triple division as permissible and welcome, but non-essential. With them, it is a subdivision of their unit. The unit does not come from the alliance of the three. They accept it without murmur, provided the subdivision does not disturb the sense of singleness and repose. Sullivan does, however, unify all of the above ideas by stating that they all dispense with the use of a skyscraper to quote the styles of the past. He actually calls these historically inspired designs walking nightmares, as if a zombie culture had arisen and the decorations of the past would just not die. What follows from this point is the true heart of the essay, where Sullivan revisits a concept we already noted in part one, that of the form of objects. Hewing closely to the realist perspective upheld by his geometry professor in Paris, he starts by stating that all things in nature have a distinguishing shape. Unfailingly in nature, these shapes express the inner life, the native quality of the animal, tree, bird, fish that they present to us. They are so characteristic, so recognizable, that we say simply, it is natural it should be so. He acknowledges that it is obvious such things happen, but the moment we pause to wonder why and how, to peer, in his words, beneath the surface of things, the mystery of development becomes incredibly profound, an unspeakable process we call birth and growth. We have hit upon why analogizing the skyscraper to a column is correct, but also insufficient. In a telling echo of Goethe's natural philosophy, Sullivan is here framing the morphogenesis of the outward appearance of shape as transpiring within the interactive space between the inner essence and the outer environment. To put it simply, Sullivan achieved something remarkable in that, with his buildings following the dictums of what he wrote here, he was bringing a sentiment of metaphysics down into the concrete realm of physics. Poetic and spiritual ideals into an object we can see, touch, and inhabit. This connection between inside and outside, between the expression and the drives behind it, between an inner essence and an outer environment, is what lies beneath all of the morphogenetic theories he had acknowledged but set aside. The fulcrum of the essay reads as follows. Whether it be the sweeping eagle in his flight, or the open apple blossom, the toiling workhorse, the blithe swan, the branching oak, the winding stream at its base, the drifting clouds over all the coursing sun, 
form ever follows function. And this is the law. Where function does not change, form does not change. The granite rocks, the ever-brooding hills remain for ages. The lightning lives, comes into shape, and dies in a twinkling. It is the pervading law of all things, organic and inorganic, of all things physical and metaphysical, of all things human and superhuman, of all true manifestations of the head, of the heart, of the soul. That the life is recognizable in its expression, that form ever follows function. This is the law. Shall we then daily violate this law in our art? And it is in Sullivan's articulation of this law where we can grasp form follows function as originally intended. It is neither a shallow expression of utility nor an imperative to adapt built work to practical or machinic ideals. It also has nothing to do with the stripping away of ornaments, since ornament is a sentiment of particular functions. Indeed, this so-called law is an expression of the mechanism of birth and growth as Sullivan saw it. In this light, it is impossible to rightly say that in some specific building or object, form does not follow function. Earlier on, we saw the values that Sullivan wanted to emphasize in the programmatic needs, beginning with utility and ascending in a hierarchy on to emotional fulfillment. So now, armed with this knowledge, I encourage you to repeat the experiment suggested at the beginning of the last episode. Observe the natural and the built environment around you. What functions are forming the spaces you inhabit? With this perspective, one can indeed reveal what influences are truly at work in shaping our world. Within a culture that was rapidly changing, the old methods of copying previous forms had finally broken down. A new analysis and understanding were required. In this age of industrial expansion, Sullivan was radically asking everyone to see nature as an ally, not an enemy. Fittingly enough, at the birth of the skyscraper, the unmistakable marker of a new and fundamentally changed mode of human life, Sullivan had given us an invaluable tool for understanding not only how and why things are made, but in empowering us to determine which values what aspects of which essence we choose to express in built form. The paradigm shift that these ideas spurred moved us a step away from the old model of imitating historical results and a step closer 
to understanding the process that generated those results to begin with. In closing, it is also important to remember that, until not long before Sullivan's time, the old methods had worked quite well. Recognizing that the historical styles had failed to be vital architectures because they expressed academic knowledge more than the needs of context and program, however, allows us to see that the resemblance to the past is not necessarily in of itself the problem. Rigidly clinging to the surface sentiment of this essay that the old styles were to be unanimously discarded was one of the earliest points of departure for the European modernist movement as such when it began to become more distinct and removed from the early expressions of the new American architecture. As it so happened, in 1893, a young man coming from the Austro-Hungarian Empire visited Chicago to see the World's Fair that Sullivan's architecture had brought to the city. In 1896, the year that the tall office building was published, this man returned to Vienna, determined to become an architect. He would be famous for his buildings and maybe even more so for his writing. His name? was Adolf Loos, and he would influence the direction of modern architecture perhaps even more than Sullivan himself. With the latter's Copernican shift stated, the race was on to see who could become the Kepler that would bring the new system alive with the precision it demanded. Stay tuned next week as we begin our reading of his almost universally misunderstood ornament, and crime. Today's music was the Sonnenaufgang of Also Sprach Zarathustra by Richard Strauss, the Vienna Philharmonic, Herbert von Karajan conducting. Thanks for listening. In addition to the content that we have coming up for you, we have member-exclusive content. This includes additional in-depth episodes with interviews and full episode transcripts. To get this membership content, it's only $4.99 a month, $1.25 a week. You can sign up at lapsuslima.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at lapsuslima. Our executive producer is Monica Bellavin. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps the podcast grow. Every membership and donation helps us get more content to you.